Hey, Spro, do you have a like a routine for when we sit down to record these things? Oh, man, absolutely. Like I, I sit down, I put up my pillows around the microphone, I get my beverages out. Beverages? Beverages with an S? Yeah, yeah. I have three. I have, you know, my flavorful, my cold, and my hot. Well, all I have is my coffee with me, and uh, I need it to get the uh, the old brainwaves going. That's my hot. Okay. All right. Uh, I bet I can guess what coffee you're drinking. Let's it do it. Is it hot dog coffee? Of course, it's hot dog coffee. Of course. Yeah. Are you? I'm, I'm guessing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna one up you right now. I'm not only gonna guess that you're drinking hot dog coffee. Mm-hmm, I'm gonna guess mm-hmm. that your flavor mm-hmm. is the mm-hmm. Rishi Shroom and Altheanine. Mm. No, it's the cinnamon, cayenne, and cacao. <sighs> but you are right. I am drinking our dog. And uh, for those of you that don't know, you know, our opinions on the Oscars are our own. But if you trust us and trust that we've done our research, you probably should also trust our taste in coffee. Our dog coffee is not just a sponsor. They're our friends. Our dog coffee is owned and operated by the Hancocks out of Cleveland, Ohio. And not only is the coffee and its flavor fantastic, it's comforting to know that in a time when companies are hiding weird shit in their ingredients, that our delicious brew is coming from honest, quality, hands-on, methodical merchants like Mike and Emmy over at Odd Dog Coffee. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, just the beans, cardamom and clove, cinnamon, cayenne, and cacao mix, or my personal favorite, the Rishi Shroom and Altheanine. Holy shit, is it good. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders $40 or more. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its obsession, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. Hey, the movies that we watch are just too special to be normal, and the coffee that you drink is too precious to be anything but Odd Dog. So 2021, eh? Made me a little nostalgic for 2020. Highlights of my year. I turned 40. I buried my cat. I lost a little weight on keto. Uh, and I battled my escalating alcoholism. You? <laughs> Gained some weight. Mm. Um, did publish a book. Yeah. Option two scripts. And I fell in love in New Orleans. New Orleans? New Orleans. NOLA. NOLA. I'm going to go NOLA. <laughs> you win. I think that sets, sounds like a great year. So how do you feel about New Year's? Are New Year's new chapters or, you know, is it just another day in a month? Uh, it depends. I mean, years, they uh, they have a, like a lot of time in them, which can be scary in its breadth or debilitating to think about. A whole year, it's daunting. You know, a, a year can, it's hard to like realize a year was a great year. Years always to me seem like they, they were wasted. Makes more sense the older you get when people say the days are long and the years are short. So. Mm. I don't know. The, the older I get, the less I give a shit about New Year's Eve or New Year's Day. It just feels arbitrary, I suppose. Although, it's a nice excuse to crack a few beers, I suppose. Getting back to my alcoholism, you don't drink too much. Uh, good for you, by the way. But do you have a drink on New Year's Eve? Yeah, I mean, I only drink to celebrate, as I say. But uh, I had a couple sips of scotch, 12-year age doers. Uh, but that was it. I only drink. Um, doers. 
<laughs> Dewars? I don't know. Even know how to. No, I know. I think it's no. You're right. It's Dewars. Right. <laughs> yeah, but like you know, kind of what you were saying is like as the older we get, New Year's just seems like our birthdays. You know, like I feel more people are excited to wish me happy birthday than I am to have a birthday. Now, <laughs> like I'm like it's whatever, guys. It's just, <laughs> and that's kind of you know, it's just a day. It's just a new year. I just wanted to get to 2022 because I was sick of talking about 2021 with the COVID and the mass and the blah blah blah. Like I'm just I forget getting what normal feels like and i know this is our new normal but you know ugh. all right then let's you know steer clear of all that horse shit for right now anyway do you do you let's talk viewing traditions i don't know if it's common do people have new year's eve movie viewing traditions like you know do you do you have something that you watch every new year's eve like i do scrooge on christmas eve are mm. you saying like that yeah like i'm thinking of like new year's eve movies like when harry met sally or strange days <laughs> strange these days yeah oh, jesus i like i like thinking of like when harry met sally as a it's it's hard though because like you're talking about like a movie about the like christmas is a season it's not necessarily mm-hmm. a day where right. like new year's eve and new year's day is a day and so like do you watch a movie with midnight in mind like i know like the whole marvel thing this year was that somebody had timed it out where you could start end game so that the year ends right when Tony Stark snaps his fingers. But then you still got about 15 minutes left of the movie. Like, what are you, what are you doing on that point? But I guess Marvel fans will be Marvel fans. But no, I have no truth. I mean, do you? No, not really. I I did this year, a few days before New Year's Eve, I watched the first two thirds of Billy Wilder's The Apartment, but I didn't even get to the end, which is where the New Year's Eve scene happens. But I think that would be a good movie to watch every New Year's, you know, tradition wise. Whatever traditions that my wife and I normally had here too were preempted when we put our cat down. We didn't we didn't do much of anything. We didn't watch Harry Potter's like we've done every holiday season for nearly a decade. We didn't even exchange gifts until the 27th or the 28th. And then New Year's Eve we stayed in. So you know one hot steaming dump of a holiday season. <laughs> and I for one am ready to get about three months deep into 2022 and never look back. You want to get this some bitch underway here bro? Let's get to the movies. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Welcome to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy's first show of 2022. We hope you enjoyed your holiday season. Maybe you spent some time with friends and family, or at the very least, drank some good booze and ate some good food. Today, Spro and I bring you our year in review for 2021. And we hope you had a good year, but somehow we doubt it. <laughs> Spiro, I I say it, and I've said it, and I'm going to say it again. I love doing this show with you. I love having something to work on. It's a diversion. It's a side project. And while that may seem like a little thing to a dedicated self-starting worker bee like you, for a fat, depressive, alcoholic bee like me, it's really a special thing. And our little show grew a little bit this year. When I compare our numbers from 2020 to 2021, it seems that we gained listeners every single month except November. So fuck November. (laughs) They're mostly American and European viewers with a few scattered around Asia. 
Asia. So if you're a new listener, thanks for downloading and or subscribing. But we still need listeners in South America, Africa, and Australia. So, you know, if you know anybody, spread the word. You're forgetting about the Arctic ants, aren't you? There's some people down in Antarctica that can tune in. Is it down in Antarctica or up in Antarctica? I never remember. But Antarctica is the South Pole. <laughs> is it? Oh, okay. I didn't know. That. I'm sorry. Arctic is up. Don't Antarctica. Don't, don't fucking condescend to me about Antarctica, for Christ's sake. I'm pretty sure there's something like, I don't know the deconstruction of words, but I'm pretty sure because it's Arctic is up and Antarctic is south, ants somehow means southern or down below. Anterior? Maybe. What does that, means, that word mean? <laughs> that, means, that means back, doesn't it? I don't know. Uh, I think so. The back of the earth. That's what Kyrie Irving thinks is on the other side. Do Antarcticans, <laughs> do they even show up on our stat report? I don't think they do. Oh, maybe not. I don't know. But not to be outdone by our new listeners, send a special thanks to those of you that have been here with us since we started almost two years ago. Thanks for your patronage. Thanks for sharing our shows with family and friends and friends of friends and strangers. And thanks for writing reviews on Apple Podcasts. Ultimately, thanks for the support. And I don't want to sound greedy, but I'm going to I'm gonna probably come off greedy here. I sure would love to get some more listener reviews, both on Apple and on Spotify. Uh, Spotify is where the majority of our listeners retrieve our shows. Unfortunately, the process for writing reviews on Spotify is a fucking nightmare. I tried looking up how to do it. Tried, failed, and gave up. Uh, not that I was going to write a review for our show. I just wanted to be able to tell everybody how to do that. So, But no luck. If you would like to figure it out, dear listener, please knock yourself out. Tell us how to do it. And uh, please write a review if you have the time. It'd be great, but you know, no pressure. You know what's um, fun to think about is what? that while the, uh, the Oscars are losing their audience, we are gaining audience members. Yeah. So the whole yin and yang, it's kind of it's balancing very, itself out. It's very <laughs> relative, I think, but... Um, <laughs> And thank you to our proud sponsor, Odd Dog Coffee, for supporting us, the show. And thanks to all of our friends who've given their time to join us and talk movies, Rudy, Emily, my brother Lawrence, and to the filmmakers, Jeremy Cordy, Randall Miller, and Jody Savin. I love having guests on the show. And now that I'm able to help with the editing, I think Spro will be more open to it more often. I mean, I've liked it. <laughs> I, Actually, I know. you know what? Here's something I was thinking about as we were in our downtime and watching movies and just kind of coming up up with a year in review show. So one trick of screenwriting, and I want to throw this out to you, and I know you'll be for it, but might as well just do it live on air. Um, one trick of screenwriters to get exposition out in the world, out in their movies, is to have somebody in the movie that knows nothing, that knows as much as the audience. So you'll see in almost every movie you see nowadays, there's always a character that needs everything explained to them. I'm thinking like I just finished watching the Marvel show Hawkeye and Haley Stein is that character, you know, like Hawkeye has to explain like what the arrows are and stuff like that. That's your audience member getting the exposition delivered to them. Gotcha. So in season three, I think we should have like at least one episode, if not more, of like a third person, a guest that just is a casual moviegoer that like will be our audience's viewpoint because our audience isn't doing as much research as we are, you know, like they're showing up for a show and maybe sometimes we talk over their heads, probably expect especially with like the older movie episodes. I think it's something to, we invite somebody on the show that probably is like not even somebody that watches the Oscars and just like, let them, let them be the audience's voice. I'm on board. It could I be an angry great person. Idea. Or, no. <laughs> 
I know some of those. <laughs> so yeah, so I, it might actually be one of those very fun shows. We don't always have to have experts on the shows or directors or like just the casual audience member and let them be like, look, this is why I did not like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And then, you know, uh, maybe well, they put us in our place. Is not allowed to come on the show. <laughs> um, no, I think, I think that's a great idea. Um, in fact, I had one of my friends slash listeners ask me that very thing. He's like, when are you going to get an everyman's take on it? So anyway, finally, <laughs> uh, I, so I, I planned on saying this before Spro just said what he said, but I do want to extend an invitation, an open invitation to fellow podcasters, preferably ones that have some hard opinions on movies and the Academy Awards to join us for a future episode. If you are so inclined, we are uh, always open to some cross pollination. So how can you contact us? Any of you can find us on Instagram, on Facebook, eh, on Twitter. We're not getting any traction on Twitter. So it's pretty much Instagram is where we get our best uh, response and then Facebook. Just search up Spro and Lee Take on the Academy or, and I kind of prefer this method, you can just email us at takeontheacademy at gmail.com. There's something so personal about an email. It feels less like, uh, I don't know, perfunctory. I still like receiving mail too, whether it's in my mailbox or in my inbox. Social media is for presence and marketing, emails for conversation. So if you want to have a conversation with us, if you want to talk to us, please email us. And if you happen to be a Redditor, you can find the ghost town that is Reddit Saltota, S-A-L-T-O-T-A. <laughs> that was a lot. Seems like an excessive amount of ways for people to get a hold of us, but there you go. Pick your favorite. Yeah. All right. Shall we begin with mistakes that we made in earnest, but our mistakes regardless? So last year, we did one of these year in review shows, and Spro in his infinite humility thought that since we spend our time on our show pointing out the mistakes of the Academy, it would only be just if we pointed out our own mistakes. Actually, is that just and humble or is that arrogant? Is that like, fuck you, we'll tell you what we did wrong instead of waiting for you to tell us? Last season, I mean, we did, it was funny. I think like our first episode, the social network versus the King speech, Mm -hmm. we made a lot of mistakes. And I think having to do that year in review on ourselves, we were a lot more careful in season two. I also would be researching as I was editing to be like, well, that's not, I can't, I can't back that up with any Google. Search. So we were either better at biting our tongues or we were better at the editing, I feel, this year, or just relying more on opinion and not fact. But I think when we first got into this, we thought the Academy Awards relied on facts more than opinion. And then we also realized that, no, 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 this is an opinion-based merit system. And so let's do that ourselves. So let's start with episode 201, where I found the majority of the mistakes that we made. The first one I found was that you said that you thought that Pirates of the Caribbean- Let's start with one of my mistakes. Well, this is all, oh my God, (laughs) this is all in chronological order. Okay. (laughs) This is the way I wrote them. I I made little notes on my phone. I'm not attacking you, Spro. Listen to the way I I wrote this. I feel. Okay. Jeez. (laughs) So in episode 201, you said that you thought that Pirates of the Caribbean at World's End was the most expensive movie ever made. And you even said, correct me if I'm wrong, but I stayed quiet because I wasn't 100%. You were very close. The most expensive movie ever made was Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, which is the fourth movie in the Pirates saga. It cost an estimated $379 million. And looking at the list of the highest grossing films is actually kind of fascinating. Let me give you a few highlights. The second and the third Pirates of the Caribbean 
Caribbean films, Dead Man's Chest and At World's End, are among the oldest films on the list. And they are from 2006 and 2007, respectively. To call that old makes me feel old. And even adjusted for inflation, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides is still the most expensive movie ever made, which is... There it does seem like Hollywood's getting into bigger budgets. Like that, It's just surprising. Nine of the 50 movies on this list, 18% of the movies on this list are from 2021. So you're dead right. <laughs> 25 of the 50 films are Marvel or DC. And then if you count John Carter and Men in Black, then 27 of the 50 are comic book movies. Hmm. There's only one film on this list from the 20th century. I bet you can name it. Waterworld or Titanic? It's Titanic. I feel like... For whatever reason, movies set on water apparently are super expensive to make. Uh, also in, in episode 201, we couldn't remember who we were talking about the movie I Am Legend and the source material for it. And we couldn't remember who wrote it. I said Richard Jewison, which was me conflating and combining director Norman Jewison and the actual author, Richard Matheson. Again, close. Again, in, two, in episode 201, you and Jeremy and I were talking about the cascade of campy 80s horror movies. And I threw out Peter Jackson's Brain Dead into the mix. It actually came out in the 90s. I think I was trying to, probably trying to say Jackson's first feature length film, Bad Taste, which was released in 87 and is incredibly campy. Have you ever seen that movie? No. Oh man. It's worth at least one one watch. It was, it was shot mostly on weekends over the course of four years in and around Pukerawa Bay, which is Jackson's hometown in New Zealand. I watched it once with a buddy. It's fucking bonkers. A lot of mistakes in episode 201, but here's the last one. We were talking about American Gangster, and Jeremy said that this movie was the first time he remembered seeing Cho Wattel Ejiofor, the actor. And we were talking over each other at the time, and I either misheard him or I didn't want to ask him to repeat himself because I said, oh, the guy who plays Russell Crowe's partner? And Jeremy agreed with me. He must have misheard me too or didn't want to correct me. Cho Wattel Ejiofor plays Huey Lucas, Frank Lucas's brother, the actor who plays Javier Rivera, who is the character I was thinking of, Russell Crowe's drug-addled partner is John Ortiz, the actor John Ortiz. Both performances are really good, but Cordy was talking about Ajiafor. Ajiafor is probably best known for playing Solomon Northup in 12 Years a Slave. Episode 206, I was trying to say that Jay Davidson was a dresser for the stars, and I, I was stumbling on my words, and you kept trying to help me by saying an influencer before his time. And really, I just want to make it clear, he modeled when he retired. Jay Davidson is the actor who played Dill in The Crying Game, who then went on to play Raw and Stargate, hated film or hated fame, and then went under a cloak of shadow. And he returned to what he did before he acted, which was being a fashion assistant. And as a fashion assistant, he was, and what I meant by being a dresser, I meant he would help photographers and actors and fashion people pick out what they were going to wear, either for shoots or for when they go to the Met Gala. Like when they just, when they go out in public, Jay Davidson was the man to call to be like, make me look good. That's what I meant by being a dresser for the stars. Also in 206, I couldn't come up with a word for hateful nostalgia. And then I was like, let me just Google this and come up with one. And the number one Google search was the word regret, which I regret that I couldn't come up with the word nah. regret. But I was just saying, I regret the fact that Jay Davidson hated the attention he received so much he quit acting because the two roles he was in, I think, are phenomenal. In episode 208, I said winning an Oscar can ruin careers. And I brought up Halle Berry and Adrian Brody. This is disingenuous, especially with Halle Berry directing and starring in her new Netflix film, Bruised, 
while the film is a little beat up, I mean, you're not going to hit the ball out of the park, I think, on your first directorial debut. It definitely is raw, and it it's a solid showcase of skills. She can direct a film, and I think she did a really good job when it comes to Bruised, and she did a good job being in it. She longs for the world to acknowledge her as more than a pretty face. And because she talks about that so much, I'm starting to feel like really bad for Halle Berry because I think it's rather evident that she is talented. And I hope she gets the peace that she deserves feeling like she, I mean, it's more, it sounds like she's at the point now where she's trying to prove it more to her, to herself. And I hope that she, she can. Adrian Brody on the other side in the past 20 years has been in a variety of things. I and critics have enjoyed i have no idea why i made such an off-the-cuff asshole-ish statement but to list some of the things that adrian brody has done since he has won for best acting in the pianist he was in m night's the village which i enjoy as a second watch we've covered it in the other podcast second chance cinema if you've only seen it once see it twice knowing the twist it's kind of reminiscent for me in that way with the crying game like just because you know the twist doesn't mean the movie is bad it was in the the Jacket, which is little known, but I really like that film. The remake of King Kong, Take It or Leave It. Lee, you really like Darjeeling Limited and Brothers Bloom. He was in both of those. Fantastic Mr. Fox as a voice. The Grand Budapest Hotel. And fuck, if I didn't love him, love him in Peaky Blinders, which is a Netflix show. He plays a bad guy in that. Everybody that comes into that show that plays a bad guy is amazing. So sorry, Mr. Brody, if you're listening, for being such an ass. The other one that I wanted to point out, um, it was the last episode of the Poly Academy, 207. Lee, you, at the very end of the episode, said that Matthew McConaughey should have never sniffed the award (laughs) stage or smelled, I don't, you know, verbatim, but it was something dealing with the olfactory sensory and the Oscar stage. And so he won for Dallas Buyers Club. Do you think he never deserves an Oscar for his acting? No. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, I wasn't going to get into an argument. I just, for clarity's sake, I was actually with a notepad in my pocket listening as I was out and about in the town. And I like pulled out the notebook and was like, let me just, just question him. Well, those are the mistakes that we made, folks. <laughs> At least the ones that we found, which brings me to my final point for this segment. Remember that Spro and I promised a take on the Academy sticker to anyone who points out a mistake that we made and missed. So what's next? We're going to revisit a topic that we discussed a little bit last year that still is relevant, and that's the state of theaters versus streaming. So mostly thanks to Marvel, movies had a bit of a comeback this year. Numbers are up, not way up, but it seems like people are going back to the theaters, if only to see those spectacle films. I only went once in 2021 and saw Dune. To my great regret, I did not get a chance to see Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho before it left the theaters. The turnaround from cinema to VOD is so crazy fast now. And if a movie isn't selling tickets, the theaters just yank it in favor of something that's going to put asses in seats. Last Night in Soho was in a bunch of theaters when it came out on October 29th for about a week and a half, maybe two weeks. After that, I think there were two theaters in the greater metropolitan area of my city that continued to show it for another week or so. And then it was gone. And then it was on VOD, I think by Thanksgiving. So it it was, I don't know. Did you see anything or did you see everything that you wanted to see theatrical? How was your theater year? 
I am part of the Regal Unlimited program. I don't want to, I mean, they don't sponsor us. <laughs> I don't want to give them too much love, but I do try to get out and see something at least once every two weeks. Sometimes I fail and I feel like I'm slipping behind right now. And I think I might take a day off. I might do it on a Monday and just go spend the day at a movie theater. I didn't get to see everything I wanted to. And you're right about things coming and going quickly and not allowing much word of mouth to strengthen ticket sales. But also, I got to point out, movies are becoming a headache to see. Like for one, everything is two and a half hours now. Like I don't understand when that became a thing, especially when we railed against it. Not that anybody's listening to the show that like really cares that we railed against movies being super long. But if it's super long, still in my mind's eye, I feel like you're saying that this is such an amazing epic of a movie. And I'm finding these two and a half hour runtimes really hard to stay with. If I'm bored in the middle, it's hard for me to jump back on the train. Like then I'm just waiting to be wowed by visual effects or something speaking to you marvel so the two and a half hour run times is dumb and then two why what who who (laughs) (laughs) flames on the side of my face what audience polling research firm did it that said everybody is excited when we get 30 minutes of trailers before the movies who thinks this is a good idea i'm still surprised like i'm still like that's probably the last trailer and then there's like two to three more and i'm like I am now in a bad mood to enter this film with, which is probably why like the film has to be really good now for me to enjoy it. So the whole experience, two and a half hour films, 30 minutes of trailers, you now have a three hour experience, which is on par with going to see a sporting event. Now, if you go see a six o'clock film, you're getting out at nine, nine thirty, ten 10 o'clock, you know, like it's, and nothing starts at six. Let's be honest. It's six 30 to seven 30. You're getting out time for bed. Like mm-hmm. there's maybe that's just the old man in me, but this is not as, you know, <laughs> it I is. want my 90 minute films back. I want to like go see a film real quick, enjoy it, go out to dinner, get some pie, you know, something like that. And really, because less and less people are going to see the movie, you're not getting that community experience anymore. I don't think I've seen a movie this year that had more than 10 people in it. I saw Dune opening weekend and it was really packed. Didn't you go and see No Way Home pretty early on in its run? That wasn't a full house? No. And even like everything on my Facebook ad page, which is the new newsfeed. No, like everything is saying like it's 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 doing great numbers and stuff like that. It might have been the only movie I saw where there was people sitting in my same row, but there were definitely seats open. It wasn't a packed house. And you're right. Like I saw it that Friday at like a seven o'clock showing. But thank God for those people that were in there because they were telling me what I should enjoy about the film because I couldn't find (laughs) it. Oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) What we're driving at here is this new paradigm of movie watching. For plenty of people, it works better. Some are parents who don't have the ability or the energy to go out. Some of them have COVID restrictions and some people just hate going to the theater where ill-mannered clods are prone to ruining the cinematic experience by talking or texting or crunching on their corn like they can't close their mouths or generally just being annoying as fuck. Now, those people can see new films without having to leave the crib. And I know we bitched about the cost of these VOD films last year, but I'm starting to think $20 isn't too bad. 
two tickets, corn and a soda is more than that. And I'm sure we'll see that price creep upward over the next few years. But for now, I think 20 bucks for a, a new movie in the comfort of your own home is reasonable. I'm always going to champion the theater experience, you know, and I think you will too. But despite those people that say that the sky is falling, I don't think theaters are going anywhere. There's always going to be some Marvel or some Bond or some Fast and Furious or some Star Wars to bring people in. That being said, the people who still like to see the smaller, possibly independent films in the theater, those 90 minuteers, well, they're pretty much shit out of luck unless they live in New York or LA. These non-comic, non-franchise movies will spend barely any time in the theaters, if any at all. And most folks will just end up seeing them on VOD or through a streaming service. The interest and the space for movies like Power the Dog, Passing, or The Lost Daughter, it's shrinking and it's growing at the same time. It's changing, I, I guess would be the best way to put it. And unless your little movie has a star like Nick Cage and Pig, or you're an established filmmaker like Wes Anderson, the unique, the cerebral, and the art house films are going to be increasingly difficult to find and see on a big screen for the majority of Americans. I'd like to see like a paradigm shift, actually. Like I was saying earlier, like the the sense of community in movie theaters is you can't get that at home. That's the one thing you can't get at home. And TV and its budgets are going up. I want to see some shows on the movie screen. Like how amazing would it have been to have a community experience and sell tickets and popcorn to go and see like the Game of Thrones series finale or any series finale that's, you know, rocking the house. I think you could sell tickets to a Breaking Bad series finale. I think people would flock to go see something on that big screen with a variety of fans, especially now when you go on YouTube, there are so many reaction videos of people, you know, illegally taking out their cell phones and filming movies. But like the big parts of movies, like when Thor's hammer goes into Captain America's hands and then everybody just starts hooting and hollering. Like we could get that with TV shows now in movie theaters. I believe in our future, movie theaters are going to hold one night or one week in events. I mean, they already kind of do with like operas or whatever. If this doesn't happen, I think in it, at least a theater I build someday will. Wait, don't you mean a theater that we build? I would, yeah, if you want to get on board, let's go. Oh, fuck yeah. I would love to retire and run a single screen movie theater with you. I I'll need three screens. Of- three screens. Um, all right. I mean, why don't, we, why don't we split the difference and say two? Okay. I'll take all the necessary. There's a classic movie screen and there's got to be a new movie screen. Oh, okay. So you want to do first run and revival cinema in the same. Okay. Yeah, but first run for something like you were talking about, like Power of the dog like the lost dot you know like these art films that we're gonna talk about during award seasons and yet the movie theaters go no i'm not gonna run it for whatever corporate stupid silly reason well you know if the market's not there it's not there if we if we open our own theater and we show something like power of the dog and we got one movie nerd sitting in the audience that's not gonna it's not gonna put bread on the table so maybe we would have a different different look we, we could create the market people would come see power of the dog because we were showing it at the the Lee and Spro, Spro and Lee, whatever we name it, theater. They go, that must be a good one because they're playing it. That's how you do it. Okay. So if you build it, they will come, right? (laughs) Okay. All right. I would take all the necessary classes to become a projectionist and the revival half of our cinema would only be shown on film reels. And then I'd get the fuck out for the weekend while you showed, you know, Mr. Belvedere or whatever. The Sopranos. Oh my gosh. The the Sopranos on a big screen. Get out of it. Get the fuck out of here. 
I think instead of serving food during the film, like some theaters do, or, you know, the popcorn before, I would say everyone, you only have a drink menu and you have a one drink maximum. So everybody can have a drink while they watch the movie. And then when the movie's over, you convert the theater into a dining room where everyone then can have a meal and discuss the film that they just watched. You have a lot of rules to what your like audience can and cannot do. Well, I don't want a bunch of drunk people in the audience. That's why one drink maximum. I don't have like people are going to get drunk when they show like you can't breathalyze like the front door. But I am on. So like my my overall dream goal and I can't find it. It's not in Cleveland, so it's not going to happen here. But um, and this is from one of your boys films, QT. Mm. Ever since I've seen True Romance, I've wanted to see a late night showing of a movie and go to a diner and get pie. Do you know what time it is? It's about 12. Suppose you gotta get up early, huh? No, not particularly. How come? It's just after I see a movie, I like to go get a piece of pie and talk about it. It's sort of a little tradition I have. Do you like to get pie after you see a good movie? Yeah, I love to get pie after a movie. Would you like to go get some pie with me? <laughs> I love some pie. And all the diners around my area close at like 4 p.m. Or it's like Denny's and you it's not homemade pie. Like I want a homemade pie slice after seeing a late night show. So if we build a theater, we also have to build this diner right across the street or right at the corner of the street. And then they're open late night with homemade pie on the countertop. Ooh, and you know what we would name that place? What? Coffee and pie. Oh my. Oh my. Yes. Coffee and pie. Coffee and pie. Oh my. Keep up with me now. I, I have no feelings whatsoever about TV and cinema colliding, just so long as they remain separate entities unto themselves. I don't know if there's any TV show that I'd go see in a theater, but I'm sure as usual, I'm in the minority on that one. I would bet an Infinity Stone, the Marvel arm of Disney has already considered that very thing. But you didn't really comment on what I said about the little and the, or the independent films getting little to no time in nationwide theater change. Do you give a shit either way? Oh, yeah. Well, that's what I was saying. Like, I understand the corporate approach of they're not making money or anything like that. But they you have to champion art. They need to at least if you have a 20 cinema theater, you have to devote one to, you know, the old adage of this was all set in art and not big popcorn-y blockbusters, unless that's the way that Hollywood just wants to go. It's kind of like the first time I realized that Harvey Weinstein was a snake. He said, Miramax is, is going to stop making movies to win awards. We're going to start making movies to make money. And I was like, fuck, like that's a horrible viewpoint to have as a movie maker. And I think 90% of Hollywood has shifted in that direction as well. I think you're also asking, you're asking, you know, one of the most ruthless businesses in the world, being the film industry and based in Hollywood to, I mean, I guess not. I guess I'm talking about the theaters. Either way, you're asking a business that is trying to thrive off of one of the most ruthless businesses in the world, being the film industry. You're asking the theaters to have principles, to to have value above a dollar sign, which is sacrificing their opportunity cost of one of their screening rooms because movies are art. And yeah. I think, I think you're dreaming. 
pal. Oh yeah. No, I'm asking because I'm even asking more for from the audience, you know, like go see a movie that will make you think instead of one that will make you shut your brain off. Nobody wants to think harder because of all that we are inundated with. Like, so, so we flock to these Marvel movies and everything. And what I would love to see toned down is the vitriol that you get on the internet when you agree with somebody like Martin Scorsese, like Marvel films are fun and they're well made and they're great but they're not high art. People are being like, Spider-Man No Way Home should win Best Picture. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even call them art. <laughs> right. They're just, they're fun. They're cartoons that, you know, they they do their job. Like when I sit down, like my suspension of disbelief is automatically turned off and I'm able to, to enjoy what I am seeing. But you don't get that same feeling you do when you're sitting down for something of higher quality. I've, MCU just feels like television. It just feels like an ongoing TV show. Endgame was the season finale of I don't know. I'm not down with all the 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 phases and what movies go into what phase, but it just feels like it's all fan service. The you know, oh my god, look the lawyer that Spider Man got is Daredevil. <laughs> it's just yeah. all it's all it's all fan service. It's all whatever but especially now like it seems like they're like oh my gosh like let's we got to keep being marvel and it's like no you guys marvel right now is in their hobbit stage (laughs) (laughs) where it's like oh no we got to keep producing this because what we did was amazing what you did was amazing what you're producing now is just filler like until you can figure out what your next thing is whatever that's my personal feeling on that i forget what the original question was (laughs) I was I was asking you if you if you if you give a shit if if little movies make it or not. You know who used to give a shit? Steven Spielberg. Mm. He What does old Steven have to say? I, well, he had a lot to say back in March of of 2018 and I'll wind back around to the convers- or the topic that we were on. But he said the following after Netflix started winning some Oscars. I believe it was the Oscar they won for Icarus or possibly the best director that Quaron got for Rome. He said that I don't believe films that are just given token qualifications in a couple of theaters for less than a week should qualify for the Academy Award nomination. Once you commit to a television format, you're a TV movie. You certainly, if it's a good show, deserve an Emmy, but not an Oscar. So these remarks have been described by some as old Spiely just trying to defend the theatrical release model. But I think he sounds more like somebody who doesn't like that the rules have changed without his permission. And I don't understand the gatekeeping. I really don't. If he had said this back in 2012, I think his argument might have been palatable, but to say this in 2018, he's just showing his age. So then in the summer of 2021, Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment inked a pretty huge deal with Netflix. Under the deal, Amblin is expected to produce at least two films a year for Netflix for an unspecified number of years. It's possible that Spielberg may even direct some of these projects. Netflix is expected to provide financing for some of these productions. So can't beat them, join them, I suppose. Well, it's not surprising me that Spielberg is lost in his opinion making as well as his filmmaking. Uh, That aside... I do think the Academy needs to look back on how they do their nominations. He he remarked that uh, one of the rules that we have said on the show was that it has to run for at least a week in a Los Angeles theater, which is, I think we're getting past that. You know, I agree with him on that front. That it, sh- it should have a specific theatrical window? No, I just think that uh, that is a silly little rule to have. You know, like it's the reason why uh, what's his face with the 
room. He bought out a theater for a week to show the room, so his uh, so the room could be nominated for best picture. Like it's mm-hmm. it's one of those like just silly little rules that, especially now with films, you know, going, it's harder to get into movie theaters. Like we've been pointing out, even Edgar Wright's The Last Night in Soho, like barely could make it two weeks in the theaters around town, like. The fact that it's so hard that Disney is pretty much a monopoly on screens. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, like you have to, we have to readjust how we nominate films for the Academy Awards. He said, and I'm paraphrasing here, he basically said that fewer and fewer filmmakers are going to try their damnedest to get movies into their into theaters. Instead, they're going to go straight to these streaming services. And he stated that like it was a problem. And it's like, It's not a problem that they're doing that because they just want their films to be seen. It's a problem that they have to do that. And I, that bugs me about Spielberg that he, that he makes that distinction where he's like, you know, nobody's, nobody's even trying to get their movies into the theaters anymore. It's like, well, yeah, yeah. Because as you said, Spro, what's the point? It's if you manage to get it into the theater, it's dead on arrival after a week or two weeks. So why not throw it to a streaming service where people can watch it at home at their leisure, far larger potential audience, I think. And I don't know if Spielberg's lost in his opinion. I just think he was realizing that his desire to see theaters thrive isn't quite as strong as his own survival instincts. I think he just saw the writing on the wall and acted accordingly. I actually think it's kind of cool that Spielberg climbed into bed with Netflix, and I'm excited to see what he produces with them, just like I think Spielberg would think it's cool if a made-for-Netflix movie wins an Oscar now, especially if it's a movie that he makes. While we're on that subject, though, do you think like people spent as much time... You're a lover of the film versus digital conversation. Now that it's it's so much easier to just send your film to streaming services, do you feel like the quality of films is going to drop off dramatically because you don't have to have everything 100% perfect as much as you want? For like, Obviously, as James Richardson said, all work is the avoidance of harder work. If you are able to just throw, and obviously you can't just throw your film at Netflix and they go, it's on. But do you think Spielberg, Spielberg's films, let's just point him out because we're talking about him, will be even lesser quality now that he's not under the stress of getting his film into 2000 theaters because it's harder to do that than it is to stream your film to 40 million households? I don't know. I think there's going to be less constraints for Spielberg with Netflix, but I I can't make that call. We'll see. We'll see. I think Spielberg, like any filmmaker, perfect is unattainable. So what you consider to be a perfect theater movie versus a perfect streaming movie, I don't know if those things are the same or different. I don't think I'm smart enough to have this conversation, actually. But in, in Spielberg's defense, I do kind of admire him. And I admire Scorsese and Tarantino, these old school movie makers that think that they can save theaters or save film projection or both. I see justification when someone like Tarantino says he's disgusted with the direction of the movie industry. I'm tired of sequels. I'm tired of reboots. I'm tired of re-reboots. I'm tired of requels. I'm tired of franchises. I'm tired of Marvel. I'm even tired of Star Wars. So back in 2013, Spielberg and Lucas actually predicted the fall of Hollywood. They said all it was going to take was a few of these big budget movies to flop hard 
studio heads to roll, and then a new day shall dawn. And I'm not saying that's not going to happen, but COVID couldn't kill Hollywood, and a damn sure had the best opportunities so far. But let's get back to streaming versus cinema. I think I speak for both of us when I say we don't give a good goddamn how good movies find their way to our eyeballs anymore. And I'll, I'll take it a step further and speak for the masses. I honestly don't think most people care either. I've become quite the, the recluse since March 2020. And three out of four times, I really would rather just stay home and watch a movie. I love the theater experience, but it's a hassle. That said, it's fair that if I remind myself and our listeners that no major streaming service has yet produce what I would consider a bona fide classic. I mean, I hope and pray that the day is coming. Or could quote unquote classics be a thing of the past as we, you know, evolve in a more single serve, single use society? Oh God, I hope not. I think every year a few films need to be placed on a pedestal. The audience needs to have a hand in in the taste making. And I want to be a part of that community of movie nerds that decide which films deserve that those accolades and then help keep those movies alive by revisiting them, talking about them, studying them. I completely reject the idea that films should be used and disposed of. And I hope I'm not alone there. I don't know. I guess you could just, we got to look at the kids, see what the kid, you know, like the classics nowadays are things that we kind of grew up with. I don't think you're going to get the classics like they had back at like the Nickelodeon days or like the days of Gone with the Wind touring the country because it only had so many copies, you know, and then coming back three years later, like those days are obviously gone. But are the kids rewatching things or are they one and done? That's something to look into. That's a good question. I would say they're probably mostly one and done. Yeah, because gone are the days also of like wearing out VHS tapes, you know, (laughs) and rewatching winding and ruining and and all that. So I think you'd be hard pressed to find a 15 year old that owns a movie, either a physical copy or a digital copy. I think everybody uh, just rents and streams. Right. Other than your holiday traditions, mm. what is the last movie that you rewatched? And also this for this podcast? Well, what, what are you asking me? <laughs> <laughs> What movie? So, like, other than holiday traditions and for this podcast, what movie have you been like? Oh my gosh, I need to see that again because it's one of my favorite films. Uh, Gettysburg. I rewatched Gettysburg. Oh, and and I I've never watched. (laughs) I rewatched. I actually watched for the first time the extended cut, which I bought off of Amazon Prime. Which instead of being four hours and four minutes, it's like four hours and thirty-two minutes. (laughs) It was. It was glorious. I love that movie. I've seen that movie. God, lots and lots and lots. Lots of times. Oh, and I watched the the original Terminator like two days ago. So both 80s movies, both movies from... Gettysburg was 90s. Okay. Well, both movies from kind of like I just rewatched for the first, like, uh, I was like, you know what? I got to see this movie again was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on Netflix now. But I was <laughs> like, oh, the 91. Yeah. Super impressive with how they did the suits and everything like that. And then I turned on the, well, the second one was 91. So the first one was 90. I turned on The Secret of the Ooze. And I remember seeing that as a young nine year old and being like, something's different here. I don't like it. It's like putting on a jacket that you used to love intensely and sometimes you still love it intensely and sometimes you're like this doesn't really fit anymore right that question aside i just wanted to because if we're gonna say what are the kids re-watching what are we re-watching i'm always re-watching all right let's let's scuttle that for now i still think it's a, a a very interesting topic it's one of these arguments just like digital versus film it's just an it's an argument that i'm like i see both sides and i find it fascinating the interplay theaters versus streaming is obviously much more economic 
of a decision, you know, the people that that err on one side or the other do so more for money reasons than. But in any event, I, I find it interesting. Let's 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 move on though. Top. Well, I wonder what our I wonder what our audience thinks too. You know, like because movies also are germ havens, and we're so you know. <laughs> <laughs> we're so more looking at what we touch and you know what we're what we're carrying away with us to back home like with the le- faux leather recliners i'm like ugh, god the thing is right <laughs> on the surface you know like i guess like the cushions i was like oh all the germs have kind of gone into the cushion and i'm fine but with like the recliner i'm like ugh, when my skin touches it i feel kind of like new york city subway trainee I've never considered that. And now the next time I go, I'm going to have to bring a blanket because it's going <laughs> to stick in my craw the entire time. All right. Let's talk top films of the year. Speaking of money and economics, just looking at the top 10 domestic and international films, five Marvel films appear on the domestic top 10 and four Marvel films on the international top 10. The only one that is not on the only Marvel that is on the domestic, but not the international. Can you name it? Spider-Man? Nope. Spider-Man's number one, both internationally and domestically. I don't think it's released in China yet, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't know that. We're up to, I don't know what the number is as of recording, but it's definitely well beyond a billion. No, I don't know what movie it is. Black Widow. Hmm. Black Widow. Can we get weird and talk about the film that is the second highest grossing international film of 2021? A film that I'm willing to bet you hadn't heard of until I brought it up. And I bet our listeners have no idea that it exists either. I have not heard about this, this one in particular. I have been hearing a lot about international films because apparently there's some like Drive My Car from Japan. What people are saying are is the best film of the year and are predicting that the Academy Awards are going to ignore it. Like most of the award shows have so and far. The, and the Swedish film or the, Nor- I can't remember if it's Swedish or Norwegian. It's the, the worst person in the world. Have you heard mm-hmm. of that one? Mm-hmm. And the one that just dropped on Amazon, um, I believe it's an Iranian film called A Hero. How it would be super cool and super just kind of, I think, like mind shattering if an Iranian film won Best Picture at the American Oscars. But the film that you're talking about, the one, the reason why I like it, I'm going to have you pronounce the title, is that it has a 29% on Rotten Tomatoes, yet a 100% audience score. <laughs> I'm going to get off. Can we just agree that Rotten Tomatoes is an industry controlled propaganda spreading slop house of horribly written reviews? I can't stand Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) I can't stand the fact that Rotten Tomatoes is what trailers now constantly harp about. Oh, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Jesus Christ. Some of the certified fresh, it's like a two and a half out of five star review. Two and a half out of five stars does not get you a high school diploma. Like there's (laughs) nothing about Rotten Tomatoes. It's like the Yelp of critic reviews. It's the nice. new IMDb comment boards. So many of the user reviews are just studio bots. And so many of the critical reviewers are for publications you've never heard of before. Their reviews are like the guy handing out porn numbers on Las Vegas radio strips, you know, just like, here, read this, read this. I wrote something. You should read it. Like that's what <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes is getting for their reviews. Maybe they think our podcast is here. Listen to this. Listen to this. I said this. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. But honestly, if something claims 90 percent on Rotten Tomatoes on opening weekend. Realize, dear listener, that those are the reviews they paid for. 
and then hate that company for paying for reviews and then hate Rotten Tomatoes for allowing it. It's all a sham. It's for shame. I actually can recommend on the topic of international films as well as reviews, I can recommend a pretty good blogger. I don't know the person's actual name, but the name of their blog is I Have Nothing to Watch. And I actually asked that person to come on our show just because they're, I love their voice. They are succinct. I love the choice. They, 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 they highlight so many movies that I'm like, and not just new ones, but so many movies that I'm like, God, I've never even heard of this. I even messaged them and I was like, man, you put me to, sh- you make me feel <laughs> ashamed of myself. I've never seen half of these movies. He's like, why well, feel ashamed? You watch what you like. He's like, and if any of these reviews grab you, then, you know, check out the movie. Really cool nice. stuff. So I have nothing to watch. There's a free, free plug brother and if, or sister. And if you ever <laughs> change your mind about coming on the show, we'd love to have you. So the movie that Spro is talking about it's called The Battle at Lake Shanjin. It has a 29% Rotten Tomato score, as you pointed out, but a 100% audience score. Shanjin is a film that opened the Beijing International Film Festival. It's the most expensive Chinese film ever made and the highest grossing Chinese language film ever, surpassing Wolf Warrior 2 and making $902.5 million. So without going full history lesson on everybody, The Battle of Lake Shanjin, or The Battle of Chosen Reservoir, as the Americans called it, took place in late 1950 as part of the Korean War. The UN troops, which was composed of South Korea, British, and American troops, were nearing the end of the war and were hoping that they would be reunifying North and South Korea by the end of the year. Naturally, UN troops continued pushing North, which at the time seemed as though it would be the final offensive. And then Chinese troops, dubbed the People's Volunteer Army, quietly entered the battle to support North Korea and surprised the UN forces, surrounding them and engaging them in battle. So think Dunkirk, but American Dunkirk. So the UN forces retreated to the port of Hungnam, where the U.S. pulled off their, quote, greatest evacuation movement in American military history. A 193-ship armada assembled at that port and evacuated not only the U.N. troops, but their equipment and then roughly a third of the Korean refugees nearby. Casualties were crazy. The Chinese volunteer army was so poorly equipped that tens of thousands froze to death as the temperature in the chosen reservoir reached minus 30 degrees Celsius. According to official Chinese reports, the army recorded 48,000 casualties during the battle, with nearly 29,000 of them being non-battle related deaths. So so almost 30,000 Chinese soldiers froze to death. So as for the UN troops, they lost uh, nearly 18,000 and 7,338 were killed by the cold weather. So back to the movie. Internationally, The Battle of Lake Shangjin is the second highest grossing film of 2021. It was commissioned by the Communist Party and depicts an epic Chinese victory over U.S. forces. It made $899 million in China and $342,000 here in the States. The most obvious criticism was that the film exists solely to assert the moral superiority of the Chinese soldier. I haven't seen it, but apparently the UN forces are shown uh, in one scene chowing down on a a bounty of turkey legs and bacon while Chinese soldiers break their teeth on stony potatoes. Obviously, the war genre of cinema is prone to propaganda, and Hollywood certainly has made their fair share, so fair is fair. But The Guardian's Phil Hode describes the film as straight-up propaganda, almost comedically so at times. South Koreans, even, were not huge fans of the film, accusing it of being a propaganda exercise to highlight the supposed selfless sacrifices of the Chinese volunteers who helped the Korean people, when in reality, 
they wreak colossal havoc and cause the two Koreas to be divided. Like I said before, Hollywood and the American government have long history of using these same kinds of cinematic tactics to stoke nationalism. Films like Sergeant York, The Green Berets, and even Rocky IV come to mind. In fact, you could argue that China's simply copying our playbook, except for one glaring difference. We're able to publicly point out how transparent and goading a movie like American Sniper is, whereas the Chinese are not. A journalist named Lu Xiangping used his private Weibo account to question this movie's version of events. He found himself detained by Chinese police and his account shut down. Luo was charged under a recently enacted law that makes it a crime to defame political martyrs. So that kind of political repression is rather terrifying. I know a lot of Americans have serious beef with younger generations and their revisionist histories, but thank God we are able to question the American mythos both privately and publicly with impunity. I was going to make an Edward Snowden joke here, but <laughs> I like what you're talking about, so I'm just going to go ahead. I, I don't know why I spent so much time talking about and researching this this movie and this historical event. I was just so surprised that there was a movie I'd never heard of that made nearly a billion dollars in the last four months. I'm glad you did, though. Like, I'm glad film should be, like I always say... <laughs> <laughs> a mirror that reflects our society and a mirror that only shows one version of events, which we're partial to here in America of, you know, American pride and pro-America and stuff like that. Like even, you know, Republicans will rail against Michael Moore because Michael Moore will make documentaries about uh, ways that America, you know, is failing. It's still a pro-American edge to it because it's like, this is how we could be better. Where a film like this will probably show how our worst side because it's things that we won't even point out excuse me won't even point out about ourselves so it would be interesting much like all these international films that could win an academy award like it's a, it's an interesting take it's a new take and it's something that we should probably i don't know there's a whole socio socio political thing to it where if we found less pride in our american selves like what would that do to our country who knows i don't know but <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's kind of indicative of Gables, right? And Hitler and their propaganda machine. Like that's where it all kind of started. Or at least that's what I learned in history class that the Nazis were like the first. So <clears throat> Lee and I always talked about the Golden Globe Awards. We'll talk about so we would be remiss to not talk about them when there's so much controversy to them. And the controversy has muted what is the second largest award show in the industry. First and foremost, let's talk about what happens or what happened. The Golden Globes are awarded and put on by the Hollywood Foreign Press. Lee, did you think it was just a bunch of non-American journalists for the I Hollywood Foreign Press? 100%. Yeah, me too. Um, it's actually just made up of just journalists and not even full-time journalists. If you could prove that you have worked at journalism at some point of your life, you could be a member of the 90-person team that constitutes the Hollywood Foreign Press. In 2021, the Los Angeles Times reported there were no members of the Hollywood Foreign Press of African descent. They, of course, said there are no black members. Add to this, in 2021, Emily in Paris, a TV show on Netflix right now, essentially a fish-out-of-water tale, was nominated over shows like I May Destroy You and Insecure. Have you seen any three of these shows, Lee? You know I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know anybody that really has. I have it. And it weakens the argument that there is an argument when Emily in Paris was also nominated for an Emmy, meaning it's probably a good show. But so was I May Destroy You. It also came out that the HFPA, of which there's 90 members, like I said, was wined and dined by the Emily in Paris production. Accepting donations or bribes isn't a good look. 
It happens in every award show, no doubt, but the HFPA was caught. In fact, that's what this all boils down to. The HFPA was caught doing things that they shouldn't be doing. Not having enough diversity is something we talk about often on this show on Saltota. A melanin-lacking country with a history of European power is slowly finding social equality as we increase our financial disparities. That's America. But one thing we should consider about this whole controversy, this whole scandal about the HFPA is that... The Golden Globes, if they do not nominate films with a more diverse cast, they do not benefit from the labor of those films. Not like, say, the NFL that has no majority owners of African descent and only one head coach of African descent, only one out of 32 teams, and yet is built primarily on the workload, the blood, sweat, effort, and injuries of players of African descent. The depressingly funny thing about American public opinion is that if the HFPA had just one member of African descent on their of their 90 people, they'd have aired on television this year. Because that's the difference. Controversy is swallowable in today's world. Scandal is not. And while the NFL, the NBA, the Oscars, and dear Lord listeners, the cloak of secrecy still surrounding the SAG after his diversity are controversial, because those things are controversial, hence, therefore, they're just hashtags. They just weren't as scandalous as the Golden Globes. And so the Globes weren't televised this year. And the controversial like the NFL and the Super Bowl and the NBA, those will rake in billions. All it would take would be one member. In fact, right here on Spro and Lee, Lee brought up the fact that Parasite wasn't nominated for the top prize at the GGs. And at the time, all I could think of was that was weird. So you're kind of foresighty there, Lee. I think that was pointed out uh, to me. I don't think I don't think I'm foresighty. Whatever. You're you're foresighty. All right, I'm foresighty. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> but anyway, the Golden Globes is increasing its membership by 50% with a focus on diversity. And it's my prediction they will be, will be back on air next year with a focus on diverse nominations. And in the end, NBC will make its money. But because the Los Angeles Times started to dig into the Golden Globes because of the lack of nominations for shows like I May Destroy You and Insecure and the film of Spike Lee's Defy Bloods, I need to make two things clear. One. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association was composed with a majority of female voting members, which I think is pretty cool. And 35% of the voting pool of 90 members were non-American. See, I can find no record of how many Latin, Latino, Latina, Latinx members of the voting pool there were, because of course, when Hollywood talks about diversity, they're only talking about the blacks and the whites. Two, the five bloods. Spike Lee's The Five Bloods was a horribly made piece of shit film. If you ever wanted to do a special episode, Lee, like a mystery science theater where we just sit down and people can sit down and it could be a companion piece episode of me pointing out how many directing flaws there are in that film, I'd be down. Anytime anybody wants to talk about diversity and a Spike Lee film is brought up, Sans, Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, and a dash of Inside Man, I will probably chew a piece off my cheek and think about how unintelligent a cinephile you are. Honestly, how dare you, Los Angeles Times, make me second-guess an organization with no members of African descent because you wanted to defend the five bloods, you fucking twats. Anyway, did you want to say anything before I move on? No, no, I think you've said it all. Okay. Anyway, the Golden Globes came and went. If you are on Twitter, you probably have noticed. If you're not on Twitter, you probably didn't notice because nobody really talked about it. Um, But this is who, I mean, they had their show. It wasn't televised. They had their nominations. They had their awards. 
And so real quick for 2021 running down, these are probably some of the films that we're going to be talking about when the Oscar nominations are announced and we come on and talk about those before the awards. So Best Picture Drama, The Power of the Dog one, which you can watch on Netflix. Best Picture Musical Comedy, West Side Story. Best Actress for a Drama was given to Nicole Kidman for Being the Ricardos. You could find that on Amazon Prime. Best Actor Drama was Will Smith, who we might get to talk about again for his role in King Richard. I think that's on HBO Max. Best Actress in a Musical Comedy, Rachel Zegler for West Side Story. Best Actor for a Musical Comedy, Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom. Best Supporting Actress, Ariana DeBose for West Side Story. Best Supporting Actor, Cody Smith-McPhee for Power of the Dog. Best Director, Jane Campion for Power of the Dog. Best Screenplay, Belfast, Kenneth Branagh. Best Animated Picture was Disney's Encanto, which is now on Disney+. Best Foreign Picture, like we brought up, was Drive My Car from Japan. Best Score, Hans Zimmer for Dune. And Best Song, No Time to Die by Billie Eilish. You know that's going to be nominated for an Academy Award because they want her on their stage. Yeah, they do. The other award show is the Critics' Choice Awards. And the Critics' Choice Awards love the fact that the Golden Globes had a scandal and were like, we're going to be the next Golden Globes. Let me tell you why that is bullshit. I mean, I don't care if like another award show wants to slide into the Golden Globes place. I love competition and I like winners and losers. But the Critics' Choice Awards should have no merit whatsoever based off what I'm about to say. The Critics' Choice Awards wants to be the new Golden Globes and have moved the date of their telecast to the same day as the BAFTAs. First and foremost, you know the BAFTAs are one of the top award shows. Why would you schedule? They just said it worked out better the way COVID is and everything and and getting butts in the seats in their uh, venue. I wonder what Jeremy, (laughs) our guest host who says the BAFTAs are his favorite award show, what he feels about that. We'll have to ask him when he comes on for season three. But here's the thing that I don't like about the Critics' Choice Awards. The Critics' Choice Awards, their best picture nominees don't coincide with how the critics reviewed the films. Looking at Metacritic, and yes, Metacritic is what I use instead of Rotten Tomatoes, the Best Picture nominees for the Critics' Choice Awards are dubious to say the least. Their top one is Power of the Dog, which won Best Picture Drama at the Golden Globes. That got an 89%, tied with Licorice Pizza, and then West Side Story got an 85%. After that, nothing got a B. Everything is C all the way to Don't Look Up, which is a 49%. The other films on the list are Belfast, Coda, Dune, King Richard, Nightmare Alley, and Tick, Tick, Boom. So there's a long list of films, of American-made films, let's just say that, because they didn't look at things like Drive My Car and what was the Swedish film? The Worst Person in the World. These aren't making their list, obviously. Drive My Car is one of the best critically reviewed films of the year. It's just not up there. But what If the Critics' Choice Awards were awarding films based off their reviews, what would be up there? One, The Tragedy of Macbeth, the Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand, the Joel Cohen film. That's got an 87%. The Lost Daughter, which we're now touting on our social media accounts. The Maggie Gyllenhaal film, that's 86%. The Novice, which looks like a good film, 85%. The Green Knight, 85%. Passing, 85%. In the Heights, 84%. Which, for whatever reason, I thought... Wasn't critically reviewed well, so I didn't watch it, but now I'm going to. 
Come on, come on has 82%. The Nicolas Cage movie Pig has 82%. Bergman Island, Test Pattern, Riders of Justice, Mass, they all scored 81%. There's so many here that probably at least deserve recognition over Don't Look Up, which has a 49% on Metacritic. I'm just going to skip to my end point here. The highest C film was Belfast with a 77%. And according to Metacritic, it is the 113th best film of the year, not one of the top 10. The worst reviewed film, Don't Look Up, which the Critics' Choice Awards nominated as one of the top 10 films. On Metacritic, it is the 432nd film sandwiched between The Jungle Cruise and Venom 2, Let There Be Carnage. And FYI, their list only goes to 537. So no, no, the Critics' Choice Awards should have very little merit in this game. There's something fishy with them. And I wish the LA Times did a deep dive on their nomination for Don't Look Up because there's got to be some money exchanging hands there. Yeah, the studio greasing some palms, as you would say. Well, do you want to talk about what we felt were some of the best things that came out of this year so far? We haven't seen everything, full disclosure. We will be ready to discuss as much as possible when we get to our Oscar show. But yeah, do you want to discuss some of our favorite stuff from the year? Absolutely. Okay. So you put Dune on the list. I would not have put it on the list. I'm not a huge Star Wars fan. I am I am told that by many Redditors alike that I really, I enjoyed Phantom Menace. That's one of my top three. And also I really liked the Solo film. Um, the whole <laughs> Jedi mythology and whatnot is pretty lost on me. And so when I went to go see Dune, because the fan base of Dune seems as rabid as the fan base of something like Star Wars and Star Trek alike, I was like, I'm probably not going to get this film like I should. Like this film wasn't made for me. And I really enjoyed Dune. Like it's it's sci-fi, but at the point there's some realism to it that I could really get into. And I think the if we're going to talk about what I think is going to be nominated for the Oscars this year, I think visual effects will likely be up there. Um, and I don't Without think you could ever discredit Hans Zimmer for getting a nomination whenever he touches the composer stamp. Well, I'm glad you liked it. I'm glad you liked it. I think it, uh, unfortunately, it was a little bit overhyped. That may have had something to do with it. I don't get sleepy in movie theaters unless I slept like shit the night before. But I was fighting to stay awake during Dune. <laughs> I don't know. I put The Lost Daughter on this list because that was the first Oscar buzz movie that I watched this year that I really felt stood out. And it's on Netflix right now, for those of you that are interested. I never had much of an opinion on Maggie Gyllenhaal, and I think her direction and her adaptation of what sounds like was a pretty difficult novel to adapt are stellar, both. And the cast that she assembled is just tremendous. I think Dakota Johnson's never been better. It's great to see Ed Harris again. Olivia Coleman's always great. And I just, I want to see Jesse Buckley and everything. So I put that one on the list. Well, maybe your girls, being away from your girls, you know? Yeah, well... You'll see, children are a crushing responsibility. Happy birthday. I'm glad, like, I feel like probably saying this too early, but The Lost Daughter for me, for everything that I've seen this year, this is my selection for Best Picture of the Year. It has everything that I could possibly want from a Best Picture. It's beautifully made. It's made with style. 
it also is that mirror of society that I talk about so much. This is a film pretty much, I mean, is it, it's about postpartum. It's like post postpartum. It's like five years down the road, you know, like when you have a difficult five-year-old daughter and you're just trying to be um, a professional woman, it says something about us that I've never seen in film done quite so well. And it really made me think if the lost daughter won best picture, I'd be excited for it because this is all around what I desire from films this year. What I really like about this movie is it takes someone, a mother, it takes a mother character and mothers are supposed to be what? Saints on earth, right? They are supposed to be the the beginning and the end of a child's support system. They are supposed to love unconditionally. They are supposed to act with selflessness at every turn. And this character that Olivia Coleman plays doesn't. And I don't know, I felt I felt that. It got I, I got it. It got to me. And of course that's one of the big hang-ups about whether to have a family or not. Do I want to give up my time to another human being? Do I want to be solely responsible? I mean, the line that Olivia Coleman has, children are a crushing responsibility. I don't know, got me on every level. So Well, there's also I we'll talk about this probably more when it I'm sure it's going to be nominated, but the uh I had a longtime girlfriend that didn't want kids and like I would see how society kind of looked down on her and she'd be like, "Look, I'm just too selfish. I'm too selfish with my time. I know I'm too selfish to have kids." People would be like, "Raw," you know, like still getting on her. I was like, "That's a very honest answer." And kudos to her for knowing herself. This film kind of reminded me of that where if you didn't strive to be the perfect mother, you know, like you felt a weight on your shoulders. And it's a weight that I will never feel probably in my lifetime. I think women are also more criticized for how they raise children than fathers are. And I think this film from Maggie Gyllenhaal was a very honest take and look at it. And I'm, I'm glad the film exists. Now, with that said... While it's my shoe in for best picture, I don't believe that Maggie Gyllenhaal does. I think she will get nominated. I don't think she does, deserves the best picture or best director award. I think that should go with something else on our list, which is Jane Campion for Power of the Dog. Twenty-five years since our first run together, nineteen hundred and nothing. It's a long time. What you doing? Getting mixed up with her. You are marvelous, Rose. We were married someday. I wonder what little lady made these. I did, sir. Phil? Open up the gate, let him out. You sure he's not ready? Go on, let him out. It's just a man, Peter. Only another man. <laughs> man was made by patience and the odds against him. For what kind of man would I be if I did not help my mother? Peter! If I did not save her.
lonesome place out here, Pete. Unless you get in the swing of things. And that's that's fine. Um, you really just made me want to keep talking about Lost Daughter, but I'll save it for the Oscar episode. <laughs> um, I just okay. I'm going to say it anyway. Um, <laughs> I gave you a good segue are, for Power of the Dog. <laughs> I know you did. You did. Let's talk Power of the Dog. So this is a movie that I don't really have any desire to ever watch again. It's really very dark. The characters, your two male lead characters, and I'm talking Cody Smith McPhee and Benedict Cumberbatch's characters, are very sneaky. One more than the other. They are malignant. I, I don't know what what is a better word for that. They're both they're 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 sinister. They're manipulative. They're unkind. The movie gave me the creeps, but Campion's direction is just phenomenal. And while the movie doesn't necessarily beg to be rewatched, it's worth a viewing just simply to see this veteran director return to the big screen. She hasn't made a movie since Bright Star, which was 2009, I believe. And since then, the only thing that she made was Top of the Lake, which is an excellent television show. First season in particular. Second season is a little weak, but that's an excellent show if you've never seen that. And I think this ties in the fact that, you know, what we're talking about in episode 201 with Jeremy, instead of director and best picture being two awards that kind of go hand in hand, it should be best director and best cinematographer. Because this movie is just a beautiful watch. I agree with everything you said. I probably won't watch it again. I remember it was a night that I was like, like sitting down and I was going to watch as much as possible. And then like, I was texting you and be like, all right, I gave this 30 minutes. I'm moving on to this. And you're like, I really want to know your opinion on power of the dog. And so I was like, okay. And so I turn on power of the dog and you go, it's a slow boil. And I was like, it's Netflix. <laughs> I was like, why is Netflix doing slow boils when my kitchen is right there and I could just get up and escape it. It is a slow boil. I think afterwards I said that that bitch didn't even bubble. Like it is a slow movie through and through, but it is a beautiful movie. So well shot. I love the scenery. And even though it's a slow boil, you could tell the artistry that comes with that. And the director gave exactly what she wanted to. So I really champion Jane Campion for best director and then also best cinematography, I think. So far from what I've seen should go to Ari Wegner. Do you want to talk about Ghostbusters Afterlife? I can't believe you put that on this list. Well, the only thing I want to talk about Ghostbusters Afterlife was I saw a lot of films that were just not great when I was going to the theater or anything like that. They weren't composed very well. It's probably 10 minutes in. There's a scene in Ghostbusters Afterlife where they are driving down the road and the soundtrack, I forget even what that is, but it comes up and you could just tell that this was a movie made by a movie maker. And for whatever reason, that made me sit up in my seat a little bit more, put a smile on my face and was like, oh, yes, like I finally am able to see it because there was a lot of shit put out in the last year and a half from like the beginning of COVID to this year. And Ghostbusters Afterlife was one of the first things that I saw that was like competent. And I was like, oh, my gosh, yes, I finally found one. There it is. This is Somerville. This is where your grandfather lived. And died. <sighs> Come on, not a single bar. There better be a bar. <laughs> That's funny. 
It reminds me of that quote that you said about Ebert, where it's like, um, bad movies have a way of finding you. You have to go find the good ones. When I sat down for Ghostbusters Afterlife, I was like, oh, yeah, I finally found a good movie. Oscar nominated? No, not at all. But it's actually, it's something that you will enjoy should you go and seek it. Oh, fair enough. I like that. That was nicely put. (laughs) I would like to talk just for a second about Last Night in Soho, since we probably won't be discussing it on the Oscar episode. And I won't give anything away about this movie, especially for those of you that have never heard anything about it. This is an Edgar Wright film. He directed it. He co-wrote it. And I'm sitting there watching it on my television. And I looked at my wife and I said, fuck us for not going and seeing this in the theater. Because it was kind of goes with exactly what you were saying. Just I, I always feel like I'm in competent hands when it comes to Edgar's films. And not the greatest movie he's ever made. I am a little hung up on act three. My wife and I have tried discussing it to figure out what it was. She felt as though the resolution of the film wasn't quite as clever as Edgar is capable of. I'm still mulling it over and it's definitely one I will be revisiting. Wasn't able to see it, so I can offer no words. Did you see Nobody? No. You don't necessarily need to see the movie Nobody, although it is a it's a great time. It's a lot of fun. That would have been another one to see in the theater. I'm not a fan and, of Bob Odenkirk. Well, that's because <laughs> you must not have watched Mr. Show when you were younger. Probably not. I And I wasn't a fan of Breaking Bad, which is obviously it's one of the quote unquote greatest TV shows of all time. And by the end of it, I was like, everybody deserves their comeuppance in this and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was totally the point. There's a scene in Nobody which gets posted on Reddit pretty frequently. You can find the whole scene unedited, I believe, on YouTube. But it's the scene where Bob Odenkirk finally snaps. And there's a, a group of ne'er-do-wells that board the bus that he's on. And t- he takes this as his opportunity to unleash. Yeah, I've re- affectionately referred to it as the I'm going to fuck you up scene from Nobody. I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. I got it. If you if you've seen it, you've seen it. If you haven't, I recommend it. Obviously, incredibly violent movie. It's made by the people that made John Wick. Great combat. Really fun kinetic camera work. Bob Odenkirk, Christopher Lloyd. Oh, Connie Nielsen shows up. She's his wife. Just a very fun movie. Another one I wanted to talk about for those of you that are fans of true crime, if you have yet to watch the documentary on Netflix called Night Stalker, The Hunt for a Serial Killer, this is, I I enjoy and don't enjoy true crime. My wife and I watch a lot of it. And there are plenty of nights where I'm like, I'm not in the mood to watch it. This this is one that if you do not like true crime, definitely do not recommend that you watch this because this is, this is a rough this is a rough documentary, but it is incredibly well made. And some of the interviews, they interview one woman who was a child at the time that she was viciously attacked by the Night Stalker. Obviously, she was sexually abused and her interviews are, I mean, I'll never be as strong as this woman is ever in my life. I mean, she is clearly has the mental fortitude. I, I would I would get behind any decisions she wanted to make if she was in charge of things. The woman is steady-handed, clear-headed, and recounts what happened to her with such poise and wisdom. It's really remarkable. But that aside, this would make, if you followed the police, you could make an amazing thriller out of the, the story of the hunt for the Night Stalker. I mean, it, it, it is completely cinematic. I can't remember any parts of the mo- of the of the documentary where I'm like, okay, well, this is kind of boring. Every beat works. 
I highly recommend it if you haven't watched it. But again, if you don't like true crime, please don't watch it. It is tough. Maybe David Fincher will go back to what he's best at and do a crime story about Night Stalker. He already is going back to what he's best at. His next movie is a serial killer movie with Michael Fassbender. See? Perfect. Perfect. Because Gone Girl, Zodiac, Seven, you know, anything dealing with crime and CD Underworlds, I think is his wheelhouse. And he should just enjoy it. Just a couple of things. We don't really have to talk about them at length. Daniel Craig retired this year as James Bond. Do you have a wish list for the next Bond? I know you're a big Bond fan. I don't care. You know, like a lot of people will put their own kind of prejudices in. Like he needs to be this. He needs to be that. Like everybody hated, hated the casting of Daniel Craig. So much so if you listen to his interviews now, he felt like he probably should quit before Casino Royale Royale even came out. They had this press junket where he arrived on a lifeboat and just the vitriol and the hate that he got when they announced him as the new Bond, that he was too short, that he was blonde, that he was too old, like all these things. And now he's going to go down as one of the greatest ones. The fight is like pretty much between Sean Connery and Daniel Craig. So Barbara Broccoli, who runs things, I think doesn't take the decision lightly. You know, we don't even know. So Daniel Craig's James Bond spanned his own story. Casino Royale was, it starts with the second kill he's ever made. And then the end, of course, of No Time to Die is what it is. It's a, it's a complete arc. I wouldn't say it's a great arc. There are definitely ups and downs. And I personally disagree with how they ended his arc. But as far as like who the next Bond is, I would love it, especially because in No Time to Die, they keep bringing up his Navy service that if they wanted to go back and do a prequel and do a young Bond before maybe even as MI6 is recruiting him, I would I would be a complete fan to see a couple of movies based off of and around that. And maybe that would be now I'm just spitballing. I haven't even really thought about this. It could be a way to bring younger audience members into it by showing him as a younger, soon-to-be spy, and then starting this whole, what is it, 50, 60-year franchise anew. I'm going to sound like an asshole when I say this, but my favorite Bond movie of all time is Goldeneye. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's because of the Nintendo 64 game. Yeah. I really do. I mean, there should be more games that like the Lego games or like the Lord of the Rings games that blow by blow take you through a movie and you can you can play most of the scenes. I mean, the GoldenEye game, ter- I mean, it looks terrible now. The polygons are migraine inducing, <laughs> but it really was. It was, it was, the, it was, I remember I saw the movie right around the same time that that game just blew up and everybody was playing it. And that's all we played on the weekends. And I, I just remember being like, that's so cool. Like it, they, they really designed, anyway. Whatever. If you're ever into so my co-host of Second Chance Cinema MC will still have GoldenEye parties where everybody gets oh, together and just awesome. like yeah, just attack each other. But it's funny now when you rewatch GoldenEye, the music takes you back to the game, you know? Like that like yep. the the bunker, like the or the man, I can't even do it. I'll probably just put it in. <laughs> it's like but uh, yeah, no. So that's uh James Bond. So there's probably a, a whole lot of other movies that we haven't mentioned. Let's move on to our final segment, which is listener questions. So our first email comes from tatertotfreak at gmail.com and they write, hello, how do you guys decide which awards to take away and who you're going to give them to? Are they just from your own head or are you using a database of the worst Oscar wins of all time? Thank you for the question. It's actually probably a lot more conversation than you might think. 
We propose the awards to each other or our guests propose something to us. And then we do take a while to chew on it. I don't think we have ever, other than like the Alan Rickman honorary Oscar, have been like, oh, yes, perfect. Good. Let's go with it. And for a while... I was saying we were the only podcast to quote unquote right the wrongs, but Lee corrected me by saying, sending me other podcasts that go after the Academy. And so I must rephrase and say, I think we are the best Academy Award podcast to right the wrongs. For one, other Academy podcasts, they just go down, you know, some kind of list like you are talking about, Tater Tot Free, regurgitating the opinions of some wino from BuzzFeed or failed film student from Vulture Magazine. If we're going to harp on how uncreative the Academy is, we don't want to plagiarize somebody else's list that they wrote for 10 cents a word. And there are tons of those lists out there. Everybody has an opinion. And I think, you know, Crash for Best Picture is usually up there. Green Book is usually up there. And I think uh, Lee and I somewhat kind of avoid the shoo-ins and try to go for the more opaque. Um, Secondly, we don't just want to take the awards away because we have opinions on them. We all have opinions on them. Spro and Lee take on the Academy is about I think three things. Okay. One, writing the wrongs, explaining in depth the rights and the wrongs, and then educating the audience on everything surrounding the decision. A lot of other podcasts of these podcasts are like, blah, I love Timothy Chalamet and he should win everything. And it's like, bro, get bent. Like, it's not personal opinion, it's not popular opinion, it's what is of artistic merit. So we, Lee and I, or someone that's going to come on as a guest, they elect a choice. I mean, even, I don't think we've ever opened it up, but like if if our listeners want to write in and say like, I think you guys should really take a look at this award. We would love that kind of feedback. So somebody elects a choice. Everybody that's going to be involved in the episode talks about it, talks about why we like the choice, why we don't like the choice, what the arguments would be. And a lot of the times it actually gets shelved. Very rarely does it get met with a no, never. But sometimes we go, ah, maybe later. What can we, what do we really want to look at right now? And then we start shaping the season. We know our audience doesn't like the older episodes as much. But it really gives us a chance to do more education with those, which I like. I think that's important. But yeah, that's that's the long of it. Do you realize that you just claimed that we are objective in our in our choices? Well, I think we, you know, the, yeah, like artistic merit. <laughs> it's not opinion based. Yeah. Do you believe that people can be truly objective? No. Well, then you're full of shit. Moving on. <laughs> this comes from clearly a fake name, but it says Spronly. I'd like to bring out a little of, your, little of your positivity. I'm curious. What are your favorite Oscar wins of all time? Love and films, Richard Fitzenbutt. Um, my favorite by decade, 1920s is the Broadway Melody, 1930s You Can't Take It With You, 1940s, The Best Years of Our Lives, and the 50s was all about Eve, 60s, I gotta go with Oliver, 70s, The Godfather with, of course, The Godfather Part 2, closely behind. 80s, I really liked Amadeus. 90s, I mean, I'm totally a fan of Silence of the Lambs. And then the 2000s, we talked about it. A Beautiful Mind might be my most guilty of pleasure on the award stage. And then the last decade, which is really confusing for me to think about, but I'm split between Birdman and Parasite. My favorites were both ones that I watched live when the Coen Brothers 
won Best Director for No Country, and when Lord of the Rings Return of the King won Best Picture. Honorable mention would go to when Conrad Hall won Best Cinematography posthumously for Road to Perdition. I, f- I just realized that I completely misread the Oscar f- favorite Oscar wins of all time. I just went Best Pictures. Whatever. Well, well you did it. <laughs> All right. Last last question. Spro and Lee, the Oscar ceremony is dying. In 2021, 9.23 million viewers tuned in to watch one of, if not the worst, Academy Awards telecast in history. Seriously, it was hot garbage. I, for one, don't really care, but do you? from uh, somebody named Timmy B. And what Timmy did not include is that 9.23 million viewers for the Oscar telecast in 2021. I don't have the exact number in front of me, but that was, I think that's less than 50% of the previous year's viewers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the only way I can answer answer that is that I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. (laughs) 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 I'm used to celebrating hot garbage, so I'm not giving up yet. Our motto is the Cleveland Browns fandom base is there's always next year. I feel like this Oscars for 2022 will be better because the movies are more accessible. More movies were released. You know, Hollywood did hold back a whole lot when COVID first shut down the world. So I think there's going to be a better selection, definitely, than there was back in 2021. So I feel like it's going to be a better award show. Will it be as good as 2020 and 2019 ratings? I have no idea, but I could be totally wrong. Could be right. There's always next year. There's always 2023 to see how bad the season's going to go. I just completely satiate on hope. After this past year, I'm hoping that they can outdo themselves with how bad it was. I, I hope that it continues to decline, and uh, I'll always tune in for the train wreck of Glenn Close dancing. That's not fair to Glenn Close. You don't know nothing about the Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. I know that's the butt. That is the butt. I know that the butt was. Wait a second. It, it was a classic song by the great Washington, D.C. go-go band EU. So, yeah, and shout-outs to Sugar Bear and the whole the Backyard Band and the whole DMV. So, anyway, um, so, wait. Uh, no, I, I remember this. So, Spike Lee, um, you know, had it written for his brilliant movie, School Days, and um, my friends at the Oscars um, missed it, and it wasn't nominated so it couldn't have won which i think um, i wasn't expecting that at all that you knew the butt uh, it's it very it's dope and uncomfortable at the same time that you had all but you know do you know the dance though do you know how to do the butt quest turn up come on let's see let me see you do the butt let's see it Should have that every year. Yeah, I'm sure she knew that dance from the back of her mind. <laughs> she right. didn't practice it whatsoever. It wasn't completely scripted. So that is our very long look at 2021, which was not the greatest year ever, personally and cinematically. But uh, well, it's gone now. It can't hurt us anymore. <laughs> it seems as though 2022 has the potential to be a pretty crazy good year for movies. So uh, I'm excited. Let's hope. Until next time, I'm Lee. I'm Scro. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red. What does this song mean? My whole life, I don't know what this song means. 
I mean, should old acquaintance be forgot? Does that mean that we should forget old acquaintances? Or does it mean that if we happen to forget them, we should remember them? Which is not possible because we already forgot them. Well, maybe it just means that we should remember that we forgot them or something. <laughs> anyway, it's about old friends. Bro and Lee will be back in March for the 2022 Oscars preview. So if you want some skin in the game, make sure to watch a few of the awards buzz movies and join the conversation. And to that point, keep an eye on our Instagram and Facebook stories. We'll be sharing recommendations of the 2021 films that made an impact on Spro and me and might make a splash at the Oscars. Okay. Okay.